Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, today I'm excited to have with us Lois Tverberg. Lois is a best-selling author and someone who has written uh, quite a bit on the world that Jesus knew, the first century cultural context. And so, Lois, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've had kind of a interesting change of pace in my life because my degree is in biology and I was teaching human physiology at my local college and I had signed up for a, a class on the land and culture and context of the Bible at my church and I was somewhat blown away by how much more there was that I needed to know and especially about the Jewish context of Jesus. I really had no background in in this area. I'm a blue-eyed, Nordic-looking Lutheran uh, by background, and my last name, Tverberg, is very Norwegian. And so I, uh, I got fascinated with the question of what difference does it make to understand Jesus in his culture instead of putting them into my own. Hmm. Yeah, you, you mention in one of your books that you think that the time period we live in now is more open to exploring other cultures, and you even use the metaphor of food. And I, I think this is probably not a Norwegian thing, maybe as much as a Midwestern thing, but I have to admit the food that you list from your childhood did not strike me as overly exciting. Uh, creamed beef <laughs> on toast, mm-hmm. macaroni and spam. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Those were staples at my house, actually. <laughs> I was naming off uh, definitely various uh, gourmet foods that my mom would make. <laughs> Most of them were known uh, uh, for their blandness and their whiteness. You know, if it had noodles in it or... Uh, white bread or whatever and so yes and so my mom never she made pizza for the first time in about 1969 and nobody in my house liked it and (laughs) understand why anybody liked it so it tells you that now what you look at in your grocery store there's we're so much more aware of the infinite variety of cultures around us and where I grew up we had white bread and our white bread approach, and that was part of the reason why I didn't know very much as I, I grew up. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I do think that we are becoming much more aware of different cultures. And so as as you explained, that I think has created somewhat of a, an opening to people being more aware of Jesus' original culture, too, which was very different than our own. Mm-hmm. Yep, very much so. Yeah. And you've uh, dedicated quite a bit of your time now to to researching that culture and and writing books about it and such. Exactly. I pretty much do this all the time. Uh, Right now, I am working on my next book. Uh, uh, The name of my next book, it's called Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. And it's the third of the series. The first one was Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. The second one was walking in the dust of Rabbi Jesus, and you you get the the series there. <laughs> We're not. I'm trying not to uh, wear out that motif, but it it kind of worked together. So that's so I, I do that. I have a website that's called 
ourrabbijesus.com where I put up blogs and then I speak occasionally and it has consumed my life (laughs) in a good way. So, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, what can we expect out of this new book? What, What are you working on in reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus? Oh, golly. Well, what I want it to be, what my goal for it is that I want it to be a, I call it a go-to guide for more, I call it contextual Bible study. Um, what, and what I'm asking about are, what are the big picture insights that shed light on our Bible <laughs> that uh, can kind of hear the Bible as a native rather than as a visitor. (laughs) So those are the questions. So one section that I've been working on right now is called, uh, well, the question I'm asking is, how does the Bible think? And I'm not really speaking in kind of our pious way of, you know, thinking biblically. I'm really talking about how did ancient peoples in biblical times think in, mm. you know, in ways that, you know, what was their conception of family and their society that's very, very centered on family, and yet you see very different ideas about family with polygamy and that kind of thing. And so I'm asking all of the, you know, what is the difference when you understand uh, the Hebraic, if you, you talk about how Hebraic Jewish culture tended to think differently than Greek Western culture. How does that impact how we read? Those are the kinds of things I'm working on right now. So, yep. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait for it to come out. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I imagine that books can be a a long time coming. Lots of uh, blood, sweat, and tears in the process. Bingo, yes. Yes. Well, so let's maybe talk for a second about the book before that in the series. Um, your book, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, was very mm-hmm. influential to me. In fact, I guess you can probably tell from the name of the podcast that the idea of covering mm-hmm. yourself in the dust of a rabbi has been pretty uh, central to my journey as well. Yeah, I'm complimented. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and I was flipping back through your book, um, trying to think about what we could talk about because we have somewhat limited time on the podcast and there was really something in just about every chapter that I could think oh yeah I used that in a bible class you know oh yeah that was <laughs> that was a really good uh, insight for me um, and, and so we probably can't talk about all of them but there was one that I think has been especially meaningful to me recently and in a mm-hmm. way I think it relates to what you were just talking about about your latest book because it got me to think about how to read the bible and so mm-hmm. this was the chapter on thinking with both hands. Okay. Yep. Which, uh, that, that title, Thinking with Both Hands, you illustrate the concept with Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof because he would say on the one hand and then on the other hand and sort of go back and forth. But help us out with kind of what the basic idea there is. What does it mean to think with both hands? Well, I have to say that when I initially encountered it, it irritated me. I approach life logically. I work through things systematically, and when I first heard about Tevya approaching everything with, on the one hand, on the other hand, it felt about one step away from relativism, kind of, (laughs) 
you know, I have my truth, you have our, your truth. Let's give each other a hug, and somehow uh, we can. It, it made no sense to me, but then I started thinking back to my life in the scientific lab, and I found that actually Tevia was actually being a much better scientist than I was, or I, I would say that our traditional way of thinking theologically in terms of, I guess you'd say syllogistically, if, then, if, then, therefore, blah, 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 that linear method of thought is very mathematic-like, and yet Tevye was actually being more of an empirical scientist, where your truth doesn't depend upon the the orderliness of your thoughts, it depends upon how well you have analyzed the data in front of you and where you keep looking at the data and saying, how might I be wrong? Hmm. What other observations? I've got this model, but I could be wrong. And a good scientist does not just grab hold of a theory and run with it. He keeps, or he or she keeps pushing back on on his or herself and uh, wanting to prove themselves wrong. So, yeah. Well, does that makes sense. It, it does. Although I'm a mathematician at heart, so I, I don't want to go too yeah. deeply into you know what's wrong with mathematical thinking. Well, there isn't. <laughs> but no, I, I I get when it comes to the real world, things are so complex that we have to struggle with both sides of an issue to make sense of it. I, I think yeah. that even in um, sort of the, the world of logic and understanding how our minds work, there's the idea of confirmation bias, mm-hmm. which is that our typical way, and I think you see this in theology a lot and, and proof texting arguments, is to to not say, here's my theory, what could be wrong with it, but rather, here's mm-hmm. what I believe, what all can I find to support that belief? <laughs> you know, very, How can I bolster my existing belief more? Yes, very much so, very much so, exactly, that's very true. Well, and I was just going to say, and as I think back on the Christian church, it has seemed that when people disagree, especially for the past, you know, 500 years or so, sort of post-Reformation, that has led to more and more divisions. We, we keep splintering over disagreements. Yeah. And that is yeah. not as true with the Jews. I mean, there are some different Jewish groups, right? You have Reform and Orthodox and Hasidic. But by mm. and large, over their history, they have not seemed to divide as easily as... Mm the Christian church has. Do you, you think this idea of being more comfortable with debate is related to that? Yes, a little bit. There's some of a somewhat of a cultural difference. I, my own um, Norwegian background, they, they talk about Minnesota nice, where yeah. you just can't disagree with anybody. You just can't say you disagree. That's part of it. But actually, there's actually more fundamental reason, I think, and it actually goes back to the very nature of our covenants, is that the the basic new covenant is that we are supposed to believe in Christ, and we define ourselves by whether or not we believe in him. And so belief is the thing that defines you, whereas the Jewish, the covenant back on Sinai was actually about doing, well, one, it's about being a part of a family, you know, so there's this lineage that's involved that is actually very central to it, and then it's also to 
do uh, these various things and to be faithful to God, but it isn't about uh, affirming a list of doctrines. It's about being the nation that uh, worships and loves and serves God. When the gospel went out, the question was, do you believe it or not? And so it actually, there is a difference between, and and, and the more fundamental part of our essence of our religion is about what does a person believe. And so you're right, we do tend to to grab hold of things and get much more argumentative about them. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I listened to, uh, I think it was one of the great courses, a uh, Jewish professor talk about Judaism, and he tried to ask the question of, is it a, an ethnic group or a religion? Or And it's hard to define, but what he said is, we, we tend to think of whether something is a religion or not in terms of what they believe. Right. And Judaism is first who you are, and second, what you do. Yep, and exactly. And a list of beliefs is almost nowhere on the list. Exactly. Exactly. That really threw me for a loop when I first started studying Judaism. And, and, and uh, I wrote a blog recently that was, it was, I called it, Why Do You Have Cows in Your Creed? And it's actually because of the fact that when I first took a cl- my first class, and I just wanted somebody to say, can you just spell it out? What is the difference between Christianity and Judaism, and I was just waiting for somebody to give me Apostles' Creed, and and so the my teacher was handing out. It's called the Shema, and it is the affirmation that Jewish people say in the uh, every morning and every evening. And I'm thinking, oh, there you go, uh, that's it. And so let me see it. And at first, it started out a way that okay, I could, you know, it says. Hero Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord with all your heart. I, uh, that, that's lovely. That was, that fit right in. But then the very, there's another section that people don't hear as much, but it says, so if you faithfully obey my commandments that I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and soul, I will send rain on your land in its season both autumn and spring's rain, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the field for your cattle so that you'll eat and be satisfied. And I sat there going, what on earth are barnyard animals doing in a creed? There's no, (laughs) it made no sense. But then what I realized is this isn't, it's not a recitation of beliefs, but it is a recollection of an experience, like a historical reality is, these are the words on Mount Sinai that you, your people and God used in order to bind each other in a covenant. And when you say them again, you reaffirm this covenant between you and your people and God. It's a very different, it, it's a recollection of an experience, uh, not a list of things, I believe very yeah. different way of thinking very so yeah anyhow well you know it, this is just sort of a pet theological fascination of mine i suppose but one of the things that i am most passionate about these days i think is the lord's <laughs> supper or communion or the eucharist yeah and, and i think in a way that can be, become maybe a very similar christian ceremony where 
how do we define the community we're a part of? Uh, I'm finding that we're never going to agree, even within most small churches, about all yep. of the facts together, right? We're never yep. going to believe all of the same things. Yep. But who we are is we're people that get together and share a meal together and remember Jesus. Yeah. And that act of doing something, I think, can really cement a community. Yeah, that being, that's exactly exactly what I concluded. Is it's I it's not ironic. It's just logical that when Jesus tells us to remember the covenant, the new covenant that he made in his blood, he um, gives us a way to reenact it just the same way as as the as the Shema is a way to reenact the covenant on Sinai. So yeah, exactly. We're doing something very Hebraic and we're and you're right, you don't have to have an awful lot of facts agreed upon in order to to celebrate communion together. Yeah. Yeah. It's an experience. It or it relies on the memory of uh, a thing that happened, uh, a critical event in history that you have pinned your faith and your commitment on. Yep. Yeah. And reminds us that we follow and worship the God that works in yeah, history. Yeah, exactly. Right. That it, he isn't yeah. just theoretical. Uh, one of the, uh, when you were talking about, you know, the why we tend to argue a lot, we tend to use a lot of, how can I say it, theorizing. I, I had read an interesting quote. He was talking about, how can you say it? The, the Western God, in some sense, is the word therefore. The, the power of the word therefore is ultimate. And if you can use a therefore to get somewhere, you have established something beyond any doubt. And that God himself, mm. when, when you rely upon your therefores in order to get you to God, you really have constructed a God out of therefores. It's a, I, I thought, well, Karl Barth actually said, the Bible is not a theological book. It simply describes this strange experience that the Jews had with this strange being, you could say a alien from outer space, that touched down and said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And why do you think that you can derive that God from nothing anymore that you could derive your wife from nothing. It's a different, it's a, a real person and real things do not, are not derivable logically. They're real. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's good. Well, so let's talk about Hebrew for a second. <laughs> okay. One of your most recent books is five Hebrew words that every Christian mm -hmm. should know. And I, I think you only published it as an ebook. Is that's that right. right? Partially because it links to uh, multiple translations, and so there's sort of an interactive element. That's right. There. That's right. That was. It's a. It's not a very long book, and it's. You can hear that it's kind of a taste of Hebrew. And I wrote another yeah. book that's a little like it. It's called Listening to the Language of the Bible. But this, this, the I call it five Hebrew words book. It is uh, an appetizer plate that will. I think if you taste them, it will make you crazy that you need to keep studying and learning. But what it is, is uh, I've chosen five fascinating words. Well, if you look in an averaging English dictionary, you'll find that there are 100,000 words. It can be much more if you're looking at a very you know extensive dictionary. But 
the Hebrew uh, vocabulary is around 4,000 words. And so, you know, a person has to describe all of reality using a much smaller language. And it's like they have, they have to wedge a lot more ideas into each little suitcase, you could say, because they have many less suitcases in order to carry all the meanings. So I chose five of yeah. them, and then I decided to uh, explore them with my audience if they wanted to study them more. And, and you say, um, I've always imagined that God chose to reveal his word in mm -hmm. Hebrew because the language invites us to think mm -hmm. more deeply. Mm -hmm. That's rather inconvenient. I would rather God have just told me exactly what I mm -hmm. need to believe so that I could be mm -hmm. clear about it. That's right. Uh, actually, one of my scholar friends, when I said that, he actually said, he, he, he said, yes, that's the reason why the, the, the word was originally revealed in Hebrew. But then when God sent out the gospel, he sent it in Greek so that it could be very well defined. <laughs> <laughs> so he liked both ways. He likes them both. Uh, but yes, you're right. So I say yeah. that jokingly, of course, right? I, I, I like to think <laughs> deeply about the Bible, but I, it, it's interesting to me that you brought that perspective because I have at least recently been sort of struggling with how do I deal with the complexity of the Bible in general? I mean, regardless of language, even just reading an English mm -hmm. Bible, um, so many different voices and perspectives are represented. And, and I'm not talking about the kind of basic little contradictions that apologists deal mm -hmm. with, but you know, the, the major differences of opinion that you seem to get between the priests mm -hmm. and the prophets and, you know, the wisdom literature and these very different perspectives on life manifest in the same mm -hmm. word of God. And it, it forces you to wrestle with that a lot, I think, in order to understand mm -hmm. it. Yes, very much so. Exactly. I think it's much easier. Um, I, I, one of the presumptions that we tend to make when you're talking about our, our Western uh, ideas of needing to kind of distill everything down into a few logical systems is that it worries us a lot if we see that there is growth or change over time. And and yet, if you understand the Bible as about a real experience between a real being who is trying to teach his people how to live, you know, and then wants to send them a Messiah uh, there's development going on, like that Jacob married Leah and Rachel. And then not too long later, God says, a man shall not marry a wife, a woman and her sister. And then later on, Jesus makes it more clear, you know, one man, one woman, that's it. And so you see some changing in direction and you see that uh, God is working within the limits of our abilities to understand. So I, I am not as worried as much as uh, over of change over time as I used to when I had to kind of boil it all down to one single thing. And if there was anything that any little strand that stuck out, that was a, a major problem because it all had to fit yeah. into a little box. So, and then one of the one of the words that you talk about is the Hebrew word mm -hmm. for fear. And you make what was to me a really fascinating connection between Philippians 2.12, which I think has been a very difficult mm -hmm. verse for many, many mm -hmm. Christians. 
Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so especially for those of us, those traditions that have focused on grace, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. <laughs> what, it, what does Paul mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. But you say that the exact same phrase of fear and trembling is in Jeremiah 33, 9, mm-hmm. where God says, then this city will bring me renown. Mm-hmm. Joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it, and they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide mm-hmm. for it. Yep. And that that's that fear and trembling. Exactly. Again. It's the same. It is exa- the that same phrase, fear and trembling, uh, can mean extreme terror, and it also can mean extreme. Uh, spine tingling joy it can be a very positive emotion and and uh, there that's true with fear throughout the bible and there's more than one word for fear and it's actually true for all of them (laughs) or most yeah i'd say so is that when it talks about uh, the fear of the lord to us our conception of the word fear is so well defined on being afraid is that we have a very hard time understanding that Yerat Adonai, that's the Hebrew phrase, is incredibly positive. It means to have a reverence for God that is life-changing. And so to be, to work out your salvation with great reverence for God is a very different picture than shuddering and shivering and worrying all the time which is how we would understand fear and trembling otherwise yeah. yes <laughs> yeah yeah i like the way you said it uh spine tingling joy yes. i think was your nice. phrase yes. um yeah i i was looking for other instances of these words and one that really stood out to me was psalm 211 mm. tells us to rejoice with trembling mm. yeah and I love that phrase, rejoice with yeah. trembling. And it's that same word that's in the yeah, fear and trembling. Exactly. Phrase. Or it says, you shall, uh, the, the commandment is, you shall fear your mother and father. Or it could yeah. mean that you shall show reverence or revere. Or, uh, and it says, you shall uh, fear my sanctuary. Uh, I'm, I'm using, actually, the King James I, I just in order to make it woodenly in English, and that's actually part of you. You had said, "Oh yeah, you you had made it as a e ebook." I did that on purpose so that I could let people link easily back to look back and forth between translations because uh, translations that, uh, and especially like the King James, where it tends to be very very straightforward, um, literal wooden, they will tend to uh, choose. A meaning that really distorts even what the the word is t- intended to say uh, because it is so extremely direct. So yeah, so you you look you can compare translations. You can learn an awful lot about the language by looking at translations, and that's what the little this little book is set up to do. Yep, yep. Mm. Well, so let's look at just one more from the book. You also talk about what it means to know. Oh yeah. And you say that, and we and we've been talking about this, I think, already on the podcast. Some what Western knowledge is very intellectual, but I, I loved a quote that you had in the chapter where you compare Hebraic knowledge mm-hmm. to something of body and blood, of bones and bowels. Mm-hmm. And that's a very colourful description. Um, but I mean, what does it what does it mean to you in terms of 
how we know God or to come to know Christ? Knowledge is always experiential instead of intellectual. Or you, you, well, intellectual, I would say, is kind of a very small subset of experiential. You got to know your wife intellectually when you started talking to her, but now you have grown to know her experientially and probably what you've learned from conversations and intellectually about her is only one small subject or one small part of the of the knowing overall of her in a much wider way. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And I, I didn't think to look up this quote in advance, so I'm not going to know what chapter it came from it or anything, but I think in um, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, you make a comparison of how the Jews were comfortable sort of wrestling with God, and you say, like a marriage yep. relationship, you may be yelling and throwing yep. plates, but at least you're still in relationship. That's right. Yeah, I, I was quoting another uh, guy who actually came up with that, but that's exactly it. It was... It was it was a book on Job, and it, the mm. comment was made that Job was married to God, and he might be mad at God and throwing pots at God, but he was still married to God, as opposed to the three, his opponents, who had a distant and you know tenuous relationship where they could defend but didn't have any real uh when you say bones and blood kind of a relationship with God, it's a very different thing. That's right. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me, even in our very intellectual world, I, I have observed over the years that I think many people, when they come to faith in God, it is not necessarily that they were convinced intellectually as much as it reflects some experience they had. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if people of faith fall away from faith, I don't want to downplay the possibility of intellectual concerns. There are intellectual aspects, but a lot of times it seems like there's some relational issue under the surface where they are really struggling with God on a more relational level than a purely intellectual yeah, level. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I would say I, I completely agree. I, I find that our our intellectual arguments usually follow our moods rather than lead them. I've heard they say the reason is not the master of our beliefs, but it's mistress. I agree with you that just about everybody I know who has come to uh, an intellectual decision has a lot of emotions and a relationship that is going in behind it. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, the way the conscious mind works is interesting. In my day job, which has really nothing to yeah. do with this, um, one of the things that comes up is decision-making science. Why do people do yeah. what they do? And I think what the science shows us is that a lot of times people make a decision first, yes. and then their conscious mind creates a yes. rationale for yes. it. <laughs> and they will tell you, I did it because that's, of this, but that's not why they right. did it. That is what they made it, up after yes. the fact. And they're completely unaware of the fact that they made it up afterwards. Yes. But you, our conscious mind has to yeah. tell a rational yeah. story of why we... That's so... That. I totally... I read that I, just a few months ago. There's a book that's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, and he yeah. uh, starts off with that. And I found that really fascinating because... And it very, very true it, uh, that people make their decisions 
much more quickly than they realize or they they logic things out in ways that they don't realize and then they will come along after it with reasons and those reasons are whatever they need to be in order to justify what they decided at the beginning is true (laughs) yep all right so let's let's sort of bring this home with some practical consideration people sometimes accuse me of being a bit too academic Mm -hmm. and i could talk forever about the theory But if we're going to use this definition of knowledge, you say that to follow our rabbi is not just about gaining knowledge from him, but to become more like him in character. So have you found that this line of study and the more that you've discovered about the Jewish world and such has helped in your walk with Jesus uh, in sort of that practical sense? Um, uh, Very, very, very much so. Uh, People haven't read the book. I if the book walking in the dust but there the couple of the chapters in it are really ones that have been ones that have changed my i guess i'd say personality or my the way i live one of them is how to have a kosher mouth uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's about using your tongue in ways to be kind and the many ways that you know jesus talks about what is in your heart comes out of your mouth and there is just no end of really brilliant Jewish discussion that really builds on his words and um, like James where he talks about the tongue is like a flame of fire <laughs> you know uh, what what's the my other chapter is called taking my thumb off the scale which it goes into Jesus' words about do not judge and what did he mean? And how he, there's a bigger context for what he was talking about. And once I started reading about how in Jewish thought, they talked about the need to always judge a person favorably. Or with the, to if you want God to judge you favorably, meaning giving you a benefit of the doubt, you need to judge others, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And some of those ideas there there some of them postdate Jesus quite a few of them you can I can see that they predate and you can hear him in a conversation with others around him and when I have read some Jewish books on these things they still are talking about things that I just could not figure out what Jesus was talking about and once I started doing what they told me about do not say this 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 is the sin of speech we do not say uh, we do not embarrass someone or whatever, you know, it really mm. will change your whole life. <laughs> it's really quite uh, powerful. So, yes. and yeah. it does make you more like Jesus too, uh, obviously. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Well, so let's, uh, let's close out with where people can find you online. I think you mentioned earlier, our rabbi Jesus. That's right. Uh, you also have the In Getty Resource Center. What What is sort of the difference between those two okay. websites? Okay, well, to give you a little of my history, my background, when I was teaching biology, and after I'd taken this class and I had started studying and teaching classes at my church a lot like you did, I was doing the same thing. I was teaching classes at my church, I got, and I made friends with a, a, a businessman and his wife, and the three of us decided to start a little ministry. It was called the Engedi Resource Center. And Engedi is this beautiful oasis 
where there's water flowing in the middle of the desert. And so I started writing articles and then we started publishing books. And we did, we started that in about the year 2000. And so for several years, I wrote lots and lots of articles on the Engedi Resource Center website. Uh, and then actually that, then I had a changeover. I started writing these books about Rabbi Jesus. And so the Engedi website, which is engediresourcecenter.com, actually has a lot of my writing that predates the Our Rabbi Jesus website, which is where I have my more current blogs. Well, thanks, Lois, for your time today. It really has been a pleasure speaking with you. And you, I very much appreciate being invited, Jason. I'm, I'm honored that you're that you've been blessed by my material and i'm very glad if i can uh share a little bit more with you so yeah it, it's been great and uh maybe when reading the bible with rabbi jesus comes out we'll uh do a follow-up and talk about that one as well that sounds wonderful great so much all right all right thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dustcast. Be sure to visit thedustcast.com for show notes. I will post links to Lois's books and websites, as well as information about the music on the episode. You can also find The Dustcast on Facebook now. Like our Facebook page in order to see latest news and conversation. Leave some feedback. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you'd like to hear next. And of course, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or a review. Until next time, thanks.